Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. There is a lot of mixed emotions about the economy right now, and it is difficult to know which way things will go in the near future. So are you confident about the recovery, or do you suspect things aren't really getting much better? Is a market correction looming? What is the Fed up to? Perhaps you want to know what technologies to invest in or how to hedge your investments. Our guest, Christopher Whelan is a Wall Street insider who understands the intersection of politics and finance. He has worked at the Federal Reserve in New York and has 30 years in investment banking. He's here to share with us some of the insights from his new book, Ford Men, and give us an idea of what to expect in the global economy in the coming months. Well, welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Christopher. Thank you. Great, great to be here. Great. So what led you to write this book, Ford Men, and what is it all about? Well, Ford Men was actually my first book. I've written three, but I put it aside because I finished it in 1999. And at the time, you know, Bill Ford was getting ready to take over the company, and they were going through some tough times. They had bought a lot of other car brands, Jaguar and Volvo and all the rest of it, and they had been on a spree, a lot of which was affected by the whole dot-com era. You remember that. And so all these big industrial companies had tried to reinvent themselves, and in the process, they spent a lot of money. So I put it aside and then wrote the other books, and I decided to finish it because, you know, after uh, Bill Ford took the reins and he hired Alan Mulally in 2006 and basically saved the company, I thought, this is a good place to end it. Um, it's also important now because the auto companies, again, are facing enormous change. You know, mobility and this whole notion that people aren't going to buy cars anymore is putting a lot of pressure on them. And they're, they're trying to remake their, their business models on the fly. In fact, Mr. Ford just replaced Mark Fields, who was a longtime Ford man, uh, with another fellow who's, you know, basically, again, an outsider, like Mullaly. Uh, Mullaly had been at Boeing and, you know, really had no affection for cars, but he was a great manager. And he came in and he, he really turned the company around. So it's, a, it's an mm. interesting tale because it gives you an insight to just how much pressure some of these corporate CEOs are under right now. So is it your opinion that the, all the talk around the whole auto industry and how people are going to stop buying cars, it's going to be more corporate fleets and ride sharing, do you think that's mm. true or do you question No, that? look, it, it, it varies. Um, a lot of the people who write this stuff have never been in the 3,000 miles between L.A. and New York. So, you know, there's a part of the country where vehicles are very important. That, that's why Detroit is where we started building cars, because people got off a boat from Europe. They came down the St. Lawrence Seaway, and they needed a wagon. All of Henry Ford's contemporaries worked in wagon shops until they started building cars. Uh, Thomas Edison was in Detroit because it was a very important place. There was a lot of money there and a lot of immigration from Europe. So it, you know, it became a nexus because of the need for transportation. And the pickup truck today is basically a wagon with a motor, if you think of it. And nothing mm. has really changed. 
but it is nicer. The new F-150 is very slick. So, um, but I think that you know when you when you delve into why things occurred, which is a big part of the book, um, and how they occurred, and the whole point of the title is the people who helped Henry Ford get this done, because he didn't do it by himself. Uh, he didn't invent the assembly line. Uh, and Henry Ford did not raise wages. Uh, there were other people involved, and we talk about that in the book. So it's a lot of fun. So, but you know what? Think about that, it. They never filed bankruptcy, and GM has filed three times. <laughs> so God must have loved Ford. You know, that's all I can tell you. Oh, he figured something out, right? He figured something out different. Well, so yeah, but so GM is the prototypical corporation, the model of good governance, and they filed bankruptcy three times. Hmm. So really, really interesting, your perspective on uh, Middle America, right, and uh, yeah. with how Middle America does use car, and it's very different from the uh, centralized yeah. urban areas like the L.A.s and the Austins and the New York Cities. So that's, that's the first time I've heard that perspective, and it's so true. Also fascinating to me, the truck, right, is, um, like you said, it's, it's a wagon, right? I, I never Absolutely. thought of that. You wow. didn't have great train service in, you know, 1902. Uh, people at the time were fascinated by the bicycle. The bicycle was a big invention, but they didn't have roads. So your use of the bicycle was limited. And then the car comes along, and it had already been manufactured in Europe. A lot of them were electric. Um, but Thomas Edison told Ford, he said, no, nah, use gasoline. It's a more compact source of energy, and it remains so today. So... Uh, nothing has changed in that sense. The motors are more Very efficient cool. today. That's why you have Tesla. And if we could, sure, we would drive everything with DC motors. But it's difficult. You know, in New York City here, we used to have DC lines going into most of the buildings. They would run lamps and other stuff and elevators off direct DC current supplied by Con Ed. It's very expensive now, so they eventually converted over to AC current. But trains today, they run off DC. So I, I think that you know, over time, you are going to see electric vehicles, and Ford is very focused on this. They're focused on mobility, and they're also focused on you know, what are we going to power cars with? Uh, up till now, the hybrids with a gas engine and an electric motor have been kind of the dominant technology, because it works, and you can have one in the country. You know, I just got back from Maine. Maine is a big place. You need a vehicle that's dependable and that can go hundreds of miles. So a hybrid works very well. An all-electric car is probably more for the cities, or at least close to the cities, because you've got 300, 400 miles, and that's basically it. And then you get a charge to battery. So. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's fascinating. You know, millennials don't drive. They don't go to malls, and they all want to live in town and go out. So there you go. <laughs> it's a new consumer model. Very it definitely. is, and I do want to get back to the book, but I want to discuss this new yeah. consumer model a little bit because I, there's so much. You know, I'm in Austin, right? You're in, you're in New York City. Urban, uh, millennials, they think totally different. Everything is, is you know, the sharing um, community and, and mindset, right? So how are they going, I, I mean, certainly things are going to change as they get older, right? And, and baby boomers die off. So what do you see for the car industry in the next, um, maybe not 10 years, but 20, 30 years? It's got to look different, right? We've got flying cars that are, that are, um, that are out there now. Well, potentially, yes. You know, the U.S. was 
very much dominated by an auto-centric worldview. Uh, Robert Moses here in New York, he built highways. It was all about the car. So that's really how a lot of these urban areas developed. And I think over time, they will come up with different ways of providing mobility to people in those areas. And they may not own the cars. You may see a whole series of uh, shared vehicles that have chargers at street level and give the power away, right? Because the grid's up all night anyway. You just plug the cars in and you charge them overnight. And it makes, I think, enormous sense. But people should always remember we have to make the electricity. So electric cars aren't green. You do have to create electricity somewhere. And the question is the trade-off, the cost, and um, you know other factors. I think mass transit will become much more important over time, clearly, because it's just cost. People don't have the money to go out and buy a car. And you can see, too, 20% of sales now, quote-unquote, are either leased or, or with debt. So, it, you know, people are walking in the showrooms and plunking down thirty or $40,000 for your average car. Uh, the business model's definitely changed, even though the dealers provide financing, right? They're very aggressive about that. So, it, you know, the cost of ownership per month is usually the gating item. And if you have a family and you end up in the house, you know, to your question, right, you're doing that for schools, you're doing that for quality of life, have a yard for the kids, that kind of thing. Um, but you're definitely seeing a movement of less affluent people out to the suburbs. They need transportation. And then you're seeing the millennials and more affluent people moving back into the cities. We're kind of reversing the kind of 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, I grew up in Washington. You know, everybody left Washington, regardless of where you were from in town. And the downtown became, you know, vacant. But now, it's exploded. It's full of millennials. You know, parts of town you never would have gone into. 15, 20 years ago are now really nice. Uh, You're talking about Washington, D.C. Yeah. And look at Austin. I go down to Austin every year for Tony Moss's America Catalyst uh, event. It's a big mortgage uh, conference. And Austin is exploding. I mean, come on. You guys have cranes everywhere. It's, uh, uh, it's oh, crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Well, but don't let them touch Eddie uh, V's. Uh, Eddie V's must be protected. So just... <laughs> Yes. Okay. I'll let them know. I'll I'll uh, I'll let them know. So, electric cars are they really that green, or is that a myth? No. No. I think. Look, you have to make the electricity to charge the battery, right? So somewhere out there, you have to use thermal or uh, uh, you know gas or oil or whatever it is. We have hydro here in the Northeast. Um, somehow or another, you have to have the power. Um, so it's you know, it, it can be cheaper, but electricity has also gone up in cost a lot um, as we've converted to sustainables. If we shoot, you know, shut down nukes and things like that, shut down coal plants, which are very reliable, but they pollute, um, the cost goes up. You see that all over the country. So that's, it, it's a calculation you have to do. You have to look at cost of running a vehicle on fossil fuels, including the pollution, versus the electric vehicle, but you have to make the electricity for it. Um, I, I hope one day we're going to have power sources that are small enough, uh, much like a turbine on a train, say, that you could have in a car or at least a truck. Because you know, with trucks, when you're carrying a lot of weight, it's hard to do that with electricity unless you have a really big power source, like a train. You know, trains convert uh, energy into 
DC electricity to drive the motors because the motors are so strong and a Tesla car has a, a DC motor. That's why it's so you know remarkable in terms of performance. But to have something that's small enough to actually generate power to drive a system like that, we haven't gotten there yet. That's what a hybrid is. A hybrid can generate electricity to charge the battery, and the car also charges when it's rolling. The wheels actually make electricity. So they're fascinating. The Japanese have been very good at it. Ford has done very well with hybrids. And I think over time, like I say, we'll come up with different ways to power these things. And I think electric cars eventually will be the wave of the future. They're, they're remarkable. The tough part's trucks. If you have to carry stuff that's really heavy, I think you'll stick with diesels for quite a while. Because there just isn't an easy replacement for that yet. You need something as big as a train. But trains are extremely efficient. Trains are much more efficient than a truck. So, because they can carry so much load, so right? Much. And, yeah. and they can uh, run all the time. And in terms of um, drivers and yeah, right, but you that. need something that big to carry a you know a turbine <laughs> that's running on the on the uh, diesel, for example. That's typically what they are. They'll have big diesel engines that turn a generator that makes electricity. So was your interest in the Ford company and, the, and, and Henry Ford uh, from the perspective of analyzing the family and the corporation and how they ran their business, or was it because of the car and the car industry? Well, I got to know about Henry Ford because of my uh, research. I'm a financial guy, and I collect books from the Depression and the Gilded Age. And I was always fascinated by the fact that Henry Ford's role in the banking crisis in 1933, right before FDR takes office, is never discussed. But Henry really made a mess. He, he threatened to take all his money out of the bank. He was the biggest cash depositor in the country, very wealthy man. And... The governor of Michigan finds out about this in February 1933, and he declares a bank holiday. And there had been a lot of back and forth between Ford and President Hoover and his former business partner, James Cousins, who was really the first Ford man. Cousins became the senator from Michigan, a Democrat. So this whole episode is fascinating because it's discussed in the literature and in the memoirs of many of the important people who, you know, helped the United States during the Great Depression. But we don't talk about it. But, you know, when FDR took office and said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself, every bank in the country was closed. And that was because of Henry Ford. So that kind of got me into it. And then I was a stringer for the Washington Times. And I did a series of articles on the Explorer and the Firestone Tires and that whole mess and the hearings that were held in Washington. Uh, and there was legislation that followed that, the, tie, the Tread Act, that made a non-disclosure criminal. You notice what happened with Takata with the airbags most recently, right? That's a legacy of the rollover problems with the Explorer and the tires. Mm. Um, so, you know, a good friend of mine, John Carbo, who I, I dedicated the book to, encouraged me to write the book. He said, Chris, you know all this stuff about Ford. I had collected all of the Ford books. And um, he's like, yeah, you should just write a book about it. So that's what I did. But it's a fascinating story. It spans 20th century America. And it is very interesting because, you know, the effect of World War II, when the government guaranteed all these companies cost-plus contracts, We've only sorted that out recently. 
the bankruptcy of, of GM and Chrysler and the restructuring of Ford, Dinell and Mullally accomplished, uh, was really about getting rid of capacity that they couldn't keep anymore because the government wasn't paying them mm. to do it. All the suppliers, everybody who supported the war effort in World War II, many of those companies had come from the transportation sector. And even though Henry Ford opposed U.S. involvement in the war, Ford was very important. They built a lot of planes and a lot of tanks. So, um, you know, it's a great story. And Billy Ford, the whole Ford family, they're, they're really interesting, you know, I think generally very nice people. And they've been very generous mm -hmm. to their community. So it's a happy book. I thought we needed a happy book with all this a market happy stuff, book. right? Yeah, we need a happy well, book, you know? Oh, you said that you studied. There's no like, scandal. I mean, Henry Ford II, Henry the Deuce, was the most interesting of them. Uh, Edsel Ford was the prince, really a brilliant man, who probably was the only Ford who really understood modern manufacturing of cars. I, I would tell you that Henry probably didn't. He was very stubborn uh, and very wedded to the way he had done things the first time, uh, whereas his managers would like keep pushing him and saying, no, we need disc brakes. We can't use drum brakes anymore <laughs> and things like that. Ford was very backward technologically during the 20th century. They were very cheap. But most recently, they've, you know, they've really turned the product around. It has, it has really good quality. So, you know, that's how they have survived. So why did you spend so much time studying and collecting books uh, around the Great Depression? Well, I'm a bank analyst and a, uh, a historian. I've written a, a number of books and academic papers about these things. And uh, it's a formative time in American history. World War I is really the point where we go from being a sleepy republic with virtually no central government to having a central bank and a much stronger federal government, income taxes, all that. And we're interacting with the outside world. We had pretty much ignored the world until, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and, and the White Fleet and all of that. Uh, I think that, you know, by the time you get through the Depression of World War II, uh, the government has become paramount. You know, private finance, private business activity was terribly uh, damaged during the Depression and World War II. So you only really start seeing the private sector come back in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, that's how long it took. Um, there were banks, for example, that the government had taken over that didn't get sold till the 1970s. Because that's the government finance was everything. So I think it, it's a very important period in U.S. history. And uh, some of the people who were involved were very significant. Um, it's also the wellspring of the Democratic Party. You would not have a Democratic Party, but for the New Deal. Uh, they just were not competitive. Uh, you know, the Wilson had won, but that was an anomaly because you had a three-way race that year, and then Teddy dies. So, you know, if Teddy had lived, he would have won again. He was one of the most popular presidents in American history. Um, but, you know, it was a fascinating period. The Democrats, you know, couldn't, they didn't exist before Wilson. The, the Republicans had been the dominant political tendency going back a long, long way. So, so do you see any similarities? There are any concerns about what's going on in the economy today with the Great Depression? Well, not similarities so much, but we have extended. In other words, the Depression, we allowed deflation. We allowed everything to liquidate. And private capital formation basically went to zero. Uh, you know, uh, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz documented that in their great book. 
about the, you know, the monetary history of the United States. So I think that today you've had extraordinary government action. You've had the Fed out manipulating the credit markets and letting inferior borrowers borrow at you know, premium credit prices. And the stock market reflects this bubble, commercial real estate, uh, bond market, obviously. So the question is, how do we extricate ourselves from all of this? Um, particularly given that the amount of debt outstanding has continued to grow much faster than whatever growth rate you know you assume we have. So um, it's an interesting predicament we're in because nobody seems to be really interested in exercising any discipline when it comes to uh, debt, for example. You know, we have Illinois back, about ready to go to junk bond status. Uh, Puerto Rico is obviously a bit of a mess. And uh, I think all the industrial nations have to deal with this question of debt, but nobody really wants to talk about it. So, you know, I, 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 when I talk to clients and, you know, friends in the market, what I tell them is that, uh, you know, I think there are certain sectors like tech and, and others that are growing and interesting. But banks, today banks are utilities. They just got done with their stress tests and they can raise their dividends, which is very nice. But there's no alpha in these stocks. There's no growth here. You know, nothing exciting. Um, they've basically been neutered and turned into utilities. Um, that's what we did with Dodd-Frank in 2010. So the, the market is an interesting place. We've been taking supply out of the stock market. You know, we got central banks that own American stocks. Did you know the Swiss National Bank owns Microsoft? I mean, what is that all about? Why does the Central Bank of Switzerland have to own Microsoft as part of its monetary policy? I, I just don't get this. So it's a very strange, abnormal time is the way I would put it. Well, have you ever researched all the tinfoil hat conspiracy theories out there regarding the central banking system and the world government? Mm. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, going back to the creation of the, uh, the Fed in Jekyll Island, um, yep. Look, there have always been monopolists out there. Um, you know, the funny thing about General Motors is that it was formed by a great speculator, Bill Durant, and then it was taken over by the House of Morgan, and then later on it was taken over by the DuPonts, and it wasn't until Eisenhower that the U.S. government forced him to divest of it. Um, so I don't know that it's a global conspiracy, but, you know, wealthy people with their interests certainly assert themselves. Look at George Soros. He's caused a a civil war in Ukraine all by himself, you know, so, so these guys definitely do play around in the background and they cause changes in, in events that are very significant. But I, I think the problem with the central banks today is that they are populated by economists who don't have the courage to act on the one hand, you know, they'll never willingly liquidate a bad bank or you know, do what's necessary in, in terms of that kind of fiscal de uh, discipline. And then they have this strange worldview that's derivative of Mr. Keynes and, you know, various other, uh, uh, you know, sources. It really has the, the world on its head. They put consumption in, in, in front of investment. And that's partly why we're in trouble. You know, it, I'll give you an example from the auto industry. When they provide you with financing, instead of making you save up the cash to buy a car, you're pulling a sale from tomorrow into today, right? You want mm -hmm, the car. Mm -hmm. You can have it today, and we give you financing. For many, many decades, the U.S. has been driving growth by doing that. 
of whatever it is, whatever want or good or need that needed to be fulfilled, right? So as long as you were able to do that and you had a growing population, um, it worked out okay. But now our demographics are such that we have a large population of older people who are basically saving or spending their savings. And they're not out building families, they're not out buying cars and houses. So you don't get the kind of growth you got when, say, I was a kid back in the 70s and the 80s, right? That's a big change. And it's very difficult for policymakers to deal with that. It's difficult for companies to maneuver in that kind of market because at the same time, they're dealing with technological change that they can't even imagine. You know, some of the changes that occurred 100 years ago with electricity and steam and all of these other inventions that changed industry a lot, radio, um, we're seeing different kinds of changes today. They're not as dramatic, I don't think. But it's certainly a, a very unpredictable place if you're running a big company right now because somebody could invent some widget and put you out of business. You know, Uber. Uber is the enemy of every cab company on earth. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, um, you know, you're an investment guy, and look at what cryptocurrency is doing to investing in money, right? Yes, the, the fulfillment of Milton Friedman. There, there's only 21 million Bitcoin. That's it. You can slice them and dice them into smaller and smaller pieces, but that's going to be the supply. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with that and the other cryptocurrencies. But the Bitcoin is the most interesting one to me. But on the other Do hand, you have we have any predictions? No, you can't predict it. It's, it's just a function of supply and demand on any given day. Look at, look at the way it's been moving around. You have a, a supposed, it's a means of exchange, okay? So it is kind of money. Um, it's hard to convert it into dollars. Once you go into Bitcoin, you kind of have to stay there and you have to find other people who have something you want and you pay them in Bitcoin, right? So it doesn't have full function as a means of exchange. And I don't know that it's a store of value either. It's like tulips. It just depends on what the bid is today. From a regulation perspective, uh, what do you think the feds are going to do? Or the oh, they already or, are. Or yeah, the, yes. Yeah, the IRS is already pinging the exchanges to find out who's using them. You know, it's, they kind of treat Bitcoin like a collectible. So if you make a gain on it, in theory, uh, you should be reporting it for tax purposes. But I don't know that they have been able to actually figure that out yet. They're certainly trying. You know, the IRS mm. will, not, will not miss a track. Um, mm -hmm. And as it's gotten bigger, it attracts more attention, of course. You know, when you see vendors accepting it uh, for payment. But it's basically a commodity. It's like, imagine if you were paying for something with gold. You would have to look in the paper on the day you made the payment and figure out what the amount of gold is you have to deliver because right. your, your, your unit of account is dollars, right? Right. So, I think Bitcoin has the same issue, which is it's hard to convert Bitcoin into dollars unless you're face-to-face -face with somebody and you just exchange them like that. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting quandary. You can do Bitcoin transactions easily, but taking it and converting it into dollars, it, it certainly makes you exposed to reporting for taxes and things like that.
But there are people who just buy Bitcoins from ATM machines and just write the number down and put it in their sock drawer. And that's probably the most secure way to do it. In other words, you don't use an exchange. You're not doing it on a website somewhere. So it's a fascinating phenomenon. And then we're going to combine Bitcoin and gold now. There's somebody out trying to do that. Yes, I did read about that, and that's very interesting. Well, well people are looking for alternatives because the behavior they see from their government officials is disturbing. That's why these things are flourishing. So there's some concern. Well, you write and speak about the mortgage industry, right? And you've stated I that um, in terms of mortgages, the, what's egregious is the termination of mortgage servicing rights. Um, there have been a lot of deliberate acts of fraud and criminality, uh, and that's an area that, you know, people have in their minds, right? It, it was always um, a source of security. They have their mortgage. They pay off their mortgage, except, of course, the Great Depression, right? And their house is theirs, right? Or if they refinance. What, what is the whole issue in, in just a, a quick summary that you think with the mortgage industry and the servicing rights? Um, I think, you know, they, it's, it's kind of almost over. Uh, there were some issues, you know, going back to the crisis because you had a lot of bad loans that had to be worked out. And, you know, whenever you have an obligor uh, who's defaulted, it's a very difficult situation and you have to have uh, people who can deal with this stuff effectively. The industry had to do a lot of learning and a lot of change because we had a patchwork of state-by-state -state processes. And now because of the settlements that's occurred in the Dodd-Frank law and everything else, we kind of have a national standard for dealing with this stuff. So I think, you know, the servicing industry has seen their costs go up threefold. Uh, they're going to have to work really hard to be compliant with the law, but also push the cost back down. Because that's the only way it makes sense to be in that business. If you can't get the costs under control, no sane person would do it. And that's why the banks got out. The banks figured this out. They exited the industry, especially facing uh, the FHA, which is seen as too risky, all the big fines. You know, Jamie Dimon took J.P. Morgan out of that market um, very dramatically back in 2014. So, you know, the industry is suffering from a lack of volume because of the volatility in the market after Donald Trump's election. Um, we're going to be down about $300 billion this year. We'll do maybe a trillion mm. six in, in new mortgages. So it's a big dip. That's huge. Yeah. And it's simply because of the 10-year bond. It went up and then it came down. And so, you know, the industry's had to deal with regulation. They've had to deal with market volatility. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll figure itself out, but it's certainly not been a lot of fun, especially if you're managing interest rate risk for a mortgage lender. Uh, that has not been much fun at all. So, uh, interesting times. Before we close, any technologies or industries that you consider smart investments in these times? Well, I've been watching fintech for a while. Um, I like uh, what I see with Square. They've been doing quite well. Uh, I love PayPal. PayPal is one of my favorites because it touches fintech, but it also owns a bank. Um, so, it's a really interesting kind of hybrid. And, you know, I watch for other things. Both the names I just mentioned are kind of basic utilities. They're very relevant. They're not exotic. And there's a lot of noise and a lot of hype in that sector. 
So if you're going to invest there, you've got to do your homework. But I, I look for companies that provide useful services to people. And in the case of Square, they totally blew up the market for vendors uh, who had to process credit cards, small businesses. And they said, no, two and three quarter percent all in, no other fees. And they forced all the banks, everybody else had to change their business model. I thought it was great. And you see it all the time, the little white thing, you plug it in your phone. Yes. That's, that's, that's Square. So it's a neat company. Uh, and then, you know, as I say, I love PayPal. They, they have that nexus with the banking industry and they own Venmo, which is another payment solution. Um, but ultimately, the banks have a monopoly on payments, you know? Non-banks can't get a seat at the table when it comes to clearing payments. You have to be a bank, mm. and that's part of their monopoly. So, but anyway, uh, good luck on all of that, and uh, look forward to talking to you guys again. Yes, great. So, you know, one of the smartest things I think you said, Chris, is um, you, don't, you don't like to make predictions about the future, and that's one thing that I've interviewed tons of brilliant economists, and they've got great, great, great um, reasons why their predictions are going to come true, and I've just realized, you know what, predicting is a full game. So um, I thank you for coming on Living Wealthy Radio today. And uh, you certainly helped us better understand some of the historical uh, background with the Ford company and mortgage and finance. So we appreciate taking you taking your time today and hey, my uh, pleasure. joining us. You take good care. Thank you. So it certainly pays to understand the times and market trends. And Christopher has certainly helped us better understand the political an economic climate of today. Living wealthy does start with self-education and staying abreast of current opportunities. So taking the time to look beyond the status quo to prepare yourself and your finances for the future. We really appreciate Chris coming on Living Wealthy Radio and joining us today. And you can connect with him at www.rcwhalen.com. And certainly we will have the podcast, right, the recording uploaded on livingwealthyradio.com along with his contact information. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com.